HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Today's show is about labels, a surprisingly controversial topic. In our reporting this week, we discovered that people have a lot of strong feelings about labels and the meanings that are assigned to them. But if you take a step back, you'll see that these stories are also about trust. How do we know if labels are accurate or even necessary? From food and drink to politics and culture, labels are everywhere, and navigating them is an ongoing challenge. For our first story this week, we look at the labels given to beverage professionals when they reach the highest levels of their careers. Becoming an expert in alcoholic beverages takes more than frequenting your local bar. According to the popular documentary Psalm, which tracks the challenges individuals face in working to become wine specialists, earning the title of Master Sommelier requires passing, quote, the hardest test you've never heard of, end quote. But a recent scandal could hurt the exam's validity. 23 graduates of the Master Sommelier program were stripped of their titles in early October after officials discovered that a member of the Court of Sommeliers had leaked information about the test. The result? Only one person passed the test this year. Meet Morgan Harris, the head sommelier at Angler in San Francisco. The MS exam is really like frosting, and your career and what you do on a day-to-day level is kind of like cake. There are fewer than 300 master sommeliers in the world. Is this a valuable sign of prestige? Or just another feather in the cap of an already successful connoisseur? I'm happy to have done it for myself because it's been a goal of mine for a long time, but I didn't expect it to like revolutionize my universe or, or anything like that. There, there are many very successful sommeliers who I admire a lot who don't have the certification Wine is no longer the only industry with a standard of expertise. Over the last decade, the beer industry developed a Cicerone program, and in 2016, cider professionals were given a chance to attain expert certification. Can these industries avoid a sommelier-type controversy? The question is, 
is the industry driving having a certification simply because they want to have a certification or because it's the thing that's actually needed? If you just want to have a couple extra letters after your name, that's not really a great answer. If you want to build community and learn your craft and grow professionally, I think those are all great reasons to do it. That's why Brett Robison, the co-founder of Silver Branch Brewing Company in Maryland, went for the Advanced Cicerone Certification. I think it's arguably one of the most important things that's happened for craft beer in the last 20 years. Understanding what a typical color range or what a typical bitterness level or a typical dryness or fullness of the beer is. Because there's such a swath of people that now understand this stuff, it's really improving the overall quality of what people are getting. But Brett doesn't believe it's necessary for everyone. If somebody established themselves as a beer expert before the rise of the Cicerone program, they don't stand to benefit by participating. Michelle McGrath, the executive director of the United States Association of Cider Makers, also weighed in on how the new standards will affect her industry. We have around a thousand certified cider professionals that are proving their knowledge in apples and orcharding and how to taste and evaluate a cider. One of the things the cider category struggles with is keeping people in the category once they've tasted a cider that they don't like. So it's really, really helpful for servers to have an understanding of the different flavor possibilities that cider can offer. That will translate into sales. It will translate into the industry growing. Michelle just hopes that any growing pains won't jeopardize the industry's reputation. I think what happened with the sommelier program is the stakes got too big and it started taking itself a little too seriously. Obviously, it's made me think about what sort of controls we're going to develop in our program so that we can be sure there is no cheating. But it's made me think more on a philosophical level as well. Few of us will ever attain the knowledge required to become a certified beverage expert. So if you can't always rely on someone else's expertise, what can you do? Hannah Forden investigated whether it's possible to judge a wine by its label. A woman walks into a wine store and walks out with her new favorite red. Okay, I am that woman, and my new favorite wine is Jordy K's 2017 Spring Red. How did I find it? Well, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? Because on a cold Tuesday night, that's exactly what I did. I'm lucky to have three great wine stores close to my apartment. They all have helpful staffs and good selections, but sometimes, especially on a weeknight, I'm in no mood to chat. So I shyly look for varietals, regions, or makers that I like. I'm no wine expert. I am, however, a goat enthusiast. Friends and family know nothing improves my mood faster than a good old goat video. So I come across the spring red. It's a beautiful purpley wine in a clear bottle with a pop top. I'm already intrigued. A closer look at the label reveals a little goat in a field of flowers. 
It was love at first sight. I'd have to say that animals probably deserve a royalty from the wine industry because I think animals are what sell the most wine. That's Henry Glucroft, the proprietor of Henry's Wine and Spirits in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I told him my goat wine love story on a recent episode of HRN Happy Hour. I know exactly the one you're talking about, and I sell that wine. And it's, I, <laughs> it's, really it's, a great, it's a great wine. It's really it really good. is a great wine. Yeah. Henry sells natural wines, a market flooded with labels that are esoteric at best and vaguely pornographic at worst. There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. And sometimes it's clear that they've tried too hard. But at the same time, I don't want to be scared to buy horrible packaging if the wine's good. How should you shop for wine if labels aren't a dependable indicator of deliciousness? The decision about what shop you go into is already the biggest decision you can make. If you go to the right place and, you know, you get a moment to speak with the staff and explain what you like, you know, they really should help you find a good one. So much for my antisocial weeknight vibes. Then, obviously, the back labels of importers. There are some importers that, you know, most of the time, if I know somebody likes a wine from Zev or, you know, Dresner or one of these importers, it's highly probable they'll end up liking another wine from that same importer, just because they also are tasting and their palate is generally consistent or their approach is consistent. Or you can just go for the goat. I don't know. People love animals. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the Communications Director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook. Roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's bolognese. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Our next story looks into labels we place on cultural institutions. Kat Johnson asks the question, what makes a museum a museum? New York and other coastal cities have been struck by a wave of single-concept installations called museums, experiences, and even mansions. 
They have names like the Museum of Pizza, Candytopia, and the Egg House. And their main selling points are Instagrammable moments. Picture, if you will, a champagne bubble ball pit, a human-sized egg carton, or a confetti-spewing pig anus. No, I am not making this up. As a millennial, I understand that this foodie Instagram bait is aimed at my peer group, and frankly, I'm embarrassed for all of us, especially when I hear about a line of people paying $35 each to take pictures in front of weirdly sexualized pizza-inspired art. Where do we draw the line between publicity stunt and actual cultural value? Are these so-called experiences fads or harbingers of some weird futuristic food marketing? I wondered, who can I turn to for help in this cold, dark world of bright, shiny, quote-unquote, food museums? Enter our voice of reason, Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. Dave founded the Museum of Food and Drink, or MOFAD, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, five years ago. Now, you know, working in the Museum of Food and Drink, which is actually, you know, working on being a, a real museum, we do worry about things like, do we have that Instagrammable moment? Um, you know, do we, you know, are people going to be interested? Do we have interaction? Just because that is what a lot of um, people respond to uh, nowadays. And so you need to have that. Museums are no longer just kind of dry repositories of stuffed things and pieces of information. Um, but I think the difference is is when you have a for-profit uh, enterprise, they're solely aimed at getting a bunch of people in, getting the Instagram post, providing uh, an experience, in, in like kind of like a show person would, like a P.T. Barnum kind of a situation, right? Whereas a museum has a real educational function. It's you know supposed to uh, either preserve something, display something, or teach you something, depending on you know what the specific mission of the museum is. But it's it's you know. <laughs> It is chartered under the Department of Education and is meant to be an educational institution. Uh, and so in general, like unless you're teaching about uh, packing theory in a science uh, museum, you don't really need a ball pit in a museum. Are you sure? Pretty sure. Okay, so MOFAT is a real museum. You can go there and learn about the effect the Chinese Exclusion Act had on the restaurant landscape of the U.S., or see a line of taxidermied heritage chickens. So will the surge of Instagrammable food experiences undermine the very concept of an actual food museum? Oh, I hadn't thought about it. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, I'm more worried about the opposite happening, that people want us to become more like that. And, you know, we won't. You know, it's, it's we won't. Which is not, which is not to say that we don't want you to have good experiences. We're all about good experiences. But, you know... Um, a lot of these things appear to be, you know, just an agglomeration of images or ideas that are tangentially related to some central theme with no overall pedagogy and like just a, a bunch of things you can do and take pictures so your friends can look at you having fun or not. And I guess that's the question. Is anyone even having fun at these places? An Instagram might be worth a thousand words, but wouldn't you rather learn something? Our final story this week covers the wide world of food labels. Nina Medbinskaya has the story.
Going grocery shopping can feel like a dizzying experience kindred to that of browsing a clothing store for today's top designers. As consumers, we're faced with a broad spectrum of choices, ranging from cage-free and organic to all-natural, local, free-range, grass-fed. This list could really go on ad infinitum. But although we're used to seeing these labels on our food, do we really understand what they signify? It's tempting to let these tags serve as our food compasses, but how much should labels actually dictate what goes in and what stays out of our fridges and pantries? My name is Kim Vallejo, and I'm currently the Director of Outreach for the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets. I think that most food labels try to connect with some sort of consumer value, but not all of them are really all that significant in terms of standards that are being upheld. A lot of them really are just about attracting uh, the eyes of a perusing shopper on the shelf. Certain labels that stamp our food aren't well-defined since their standards and metrics aren't strictly enforced. In a manner similar to advertising, these labels use terminology to craft a specific image rather than adhere to a transparent standard. Take the term natural, for example. It's often sought out by consumers trying to eat healthy, but what exactly does it mean? Natural is not a term that means really anything to me. It's not a particularly regulated or defined term at all which is partially why you see it everywhere. It's something really easy to use. People can put it on everything. If it says natural on the front of the package and I turn it over and look at the ingredient list and none of those words look like food to me, then natural is meaningless. Producers and retailers use this practice of greenwashing often and consumers should be wary of it. The poultry industry in particular is rife with this breed of misleading labels, flaunting terms like free range and cage free, which portray an image that often sits quite far from reality. The picture that they show is, you know, a chicken in a field kind of walking around happily with the sun setting over the rolling hills, like that little sketch on the cardboard box. And that's probably not an accurate portrayal of how that chicken is being raised. If that is the kind of eggs that you want to eat, the quickest way to gain access to that is to meet a farmer. And for those of us that can't meet with farmers, we could still try to get our facts straight about the companies we buy from. Carrie Balcom, executive director of the American Grass-Fed Association, told me about the complicated nature of another ubiquitous label, grass-fed. There's a lot of wiggle room, as we like to call it, on what grass-fed actually is. And there is no on-farm inspection. The animals are never seen in their natural environment. Nobody knows how they've been raised, whether they've been raised in confinement, whether they've been fed something other than grass. Uh, it's all done by paperwork. The American Grass-Fed Association formed in 2003 to raise the bar for the grass-fed label. They upped the standards by creating their own third-party certification label rooted in on-farm inspections. Their AGA logo guarantees a 100% forage-based diet, no confinement, good animal husbandry, no antibiotics, and no added hormones. Know your farmer, know your food. That's one of the great slogans these days. But there's so much uh, mislabeling in the marketplace that you can either call us and we'll help you through the maze. We'll look up things for you. We'll talk to the government for you, the FSIS, the USDA for you. Labels not only advertise what goes into our food, but they also tell us where our food comes from. And although it's complicated enough to unravel the quality of our meal's ingredients, it can actually be just as tricky to pinpoint where those ingredients were produced. Carrie explains how easy it is to brand food as product of the USA, even if it comes from overseas. For if a food product is altered in any way, then it could be labeled as product of the USA, even if it's traveled thousands of miles to get to us. When grass-fed became a 
a buzzword when people started looking for it in the marketplace. At that time, um, the American grass-fed farmers had the market and people were looking for it and companies were searching out um, American grass-fed farms. And in the last seven or eight years, they've gone from probably an 85% market share to a 15% market share because the big guys jumped on the bandwagon and the um, companies have started realizing that they can buy cheap product from overseas and label it product of the USA. And so the American family farmer has gone from an 80 to 85% market share to a 15% market share because all of this uh, foreign meat is coming into the market, but because of a loophole is being uh, labeled product of the USA. While plenty of the food labels stamped on our products are misleading, the absence of a label could also steer us in the wrong direction. We tend to assume that the lack of a label signifies the absence of the quality it's supposed to represent. After all, why wouldn't a producer label their product organic if it meets those standards? The labels that have some of the most meaning about the activities going on in that supply chain, let's say USDA Organic, for example, that is a third-party, certified, you know, government-regulated term, but it, it's not a cheap thing to get certified organic. So there's this kind of constant tension of the folks who are, are most position to get that label on their food product and therefore to attract more customers tend to be the businesses that are, are larger scale and, and have more income, um, which cuts out a lot of small producers. When it comes to the food industry, labels play a labyrinthine role, which never tells us the full story about where our food came from or how it was made. As consumers, we can carry out our due diligence by digging deeper and looking behind the label to better understand what's in our grocery aisles and what's on our plates. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a special Thanksgiving episode. Meet in Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with additional reporting by Dylan Hoyer and Nina Medvinskaya. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with additional engineering by Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Get in touch anytime at ideas at meetand3.nyc.